welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. It's uh, good to be back. I'm trying to get back into the groove of things here. I know you all may be thinking um, uh, podcasts are spaced out a little bit more uh, than they normally are, and and you are correct. We're trying to get that corrected. Uh, Just trying to get back in the groove of things. Um, I believe I've got some good um, uh, inquiries lined up. We're going to have some good interviews coming up. So we'll get that taken care of really soon and and hopefully get back into our two-a-month schedule if we can. Also, trying to get a little bit more specific with our our content. We're still going to interview farmers, talk to them about their setups, uh, but kind of try to drill down a little bit more and get into some of the details. And so, for example, the uh, interview that we have today with Clay Price from Price Family Farm, he talks about his setup a little bit. Uh, but the thing that really jumped out at me was how he does his pricing, how he has this fixed weight pricing that he does, not only with his pork, but with his beef. So um, I encourage you to, to pay special attention to that because I think that's a unique approach. And it's just another way to handle uh, customers when they don't fully understand the variableness of our products. You know, the, you know, it's not a factory farming thing, so our pigs can weigh a little bit more, weigh a little less. You may expect more of this, less of that. And this allows him to, to really nail down exactly, hey, here's what you get and how he handles the overages there. So be sure to uh, pay attention to that point. Well, as far as updates goes, uh, not much. Uh, you know, everything's green and bushy at uh, Red Tool House. Uh, the pigs are doing fine, the breeding sets. We're going to be breeding here soon. So um, we'll have an opportunity to move our boars in with our sows. We do an annual breeding, so we'll uh, see how that goes, and I'll obviously keep you guys updated on that as it comes along. Of course, don't forget our Patreon, and don't forget the website uh, and our Facebook group. The Facebook group, um, uh, people jump in there. just seems like a little bit each week we get uh, more people added to it, so be more than happy to, to have people jump in and get some conversations going. Feel like I'm a little behind uh, playing catch up here, even you know, with the the Facebook page and updating the website. Uh, that uh, month of April was a pretty much a total loss for me, as those you guys that have listened to the podcast understand. Had some health issues there, but uh, getting back uh, caught up. So hopefully here in June and July we can get things back online. Well, I'm uh, I'm not going to delay anymore. Let's go ahead and jump right into our discussion with Clay, and I'll catch you guys on the backside. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. Today, we zip all the way down to Tyler, Texas to visit Price Family Farm, and, and we're talking with Clay Price. Welcome, Clay. Thanks, Troy. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to share my story and uh, just talk about pigs. All right. All right. Well, I appreciate you appreciate you being on here. Uh, for those of you listening, I'm actually recording this first thing in the morning. I usually have a, I guess I have a little bit of a deeper voice in the morning, so it's, it's still me. It's just... Um, all the morning congestion hasn't cleared out, so I'll try to use the cough button as much as possible here. All right, so let's talk about Price Family Farm in Tyler, Texas. First of all, where you know, Texas is a huge state, so when I think of Texas, sometimes I think of El Paso side tumbleweeds, and then I think of a hot and steamy Galveston side. So uh, where where is Tyler, and, and what, what are you dealing with down there? So Tyler's a, probably about um, 100 miles east of dallas is a good way to put it um not too far off the interstate and we're probably uh probably 200 or so miles north of houston so we're heading over towards the louisiana area um we're deep in the piney woods um, of east texas for sure uh, and so that's that that's kind of our location and puts us over on that more of a northeast side of texas yeah okay tyler texas is known for something i mean I, i've heard that that's it. But I just can't put my finger on it. Is there something specific it, about Tyler that it's it's known as the Rose Capital? Oh, okay. A lot of roses. Gotcha. All right. Well, very good. I'm I'm sure pigs and roses go well together. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Clay, tell me a little bit about Price Family Farm. The the, the layout, uh, maybe some of the history. How how you ended up there and doing what you're doing with pigs. 
Yeah, so we're actually, right now, we just moved last year back to um, our family property. Uh, it's been in the family since the 1800s, about 100 acres. Hmm. Uh, that's where we operate off of now. Um, kind of took an interesting route to get here. Uh, I grew up where we live now, grew up about half a mile down the road. I We did FFA, we showed cows, steers, pigs, all that good stuff. Um, but it just never really never really took to me. I, I got into sports and got really interested in that and training and ended up finding a, going to college for that and finding a career path in athletics more so than with animals. And even today, my dad still says that I was the least likely of his three boys to get into farming. Yeah. yeah. It gives me a hard time about that a lot. Um, but I got into training. Um, I'm actually a, uh, Right now, my role is director of sports performance at a gym. Uh, so I train athletes, um, as young as kids, all the way down to first grade, all the way up through professionals. Oh, wow. Yeah. So a little bit different route, but I, through that, I found the value of nutrient-dense food um, and quality food. And it actually, in a roundabout way, brought me back to my roots, back to farming and um, raising animals in a way that can uh positively impact our bodies rather than making a negative impact. Um, so I actually, I, I did training out of college for about five years. And then I took a job as a manager of a local beef company, a uh, really big switch and change for me. Um, but it got me back into farming, uh, managing cattle, uh, for about four or five years. And in that time, we just started playing around with, we got some chickens. Um, we lived on half an acre, had some chickens and decided, man, we might as well, let's, let's try to raise our own pig. So we went and bought a, uh, red wattle, uh, one feeder pig. Turns out that feeder was a female hmm. and it also turned out that that female was pregnant. To our <laughs> surprise. Yeah. Bonus package. Yeah. We got a, uh, six for one. So that just kind of spurred it from there. From that half acre, we started off with those piglets, sold off a few, kept a few, and then ended up, I uh, worked out an agreement with my neighbor that had a couple of acres that allowed me to use that for animals um, once I fenced it in. And so we grew from uh, about five chickens and a pig to uh, six or seven sheep, about 30 chickens, and eventually grew up to about 10 pigs there before I worked out an agreement with one of our one of our lease properties on the ranch to bring the pigs over there because they got too big for the little two acres that we had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so end up moving out there and that ended up becoming a compliment to the business, uh, that I worked for cut beef and Tyler. Uh, they started, we started raising and selling pork, uh, through the company as an add on piece, um, for them. And so did that. Um, and then just last year we decided to, to make a move I decided to make a move back into training. Um, we also at the same time moved back to my family property um, and purchased a 110 year old house that we are currently renovating and fixing up. Um, but we'll be the uh, fifth generation of our family to live in that house. Um, and so we brought all the pigs back there. Uh, my dad and grandpa have a little cattle operation that they run, uh, but we run the pigs down in some creek bottoms that would otherwise be useless. Uh, for the cow. So it's a great way to clean out the property and add some value um, using grazing with some pigs. Yeah. Uh, so the business side with the pig, we tried to do some breeding for a while and had some success and then had a good bit of failure as well. And so we really narrowed the business down to buying in feeder pigs at about six to eight weeks old and then raising them out until they're about a year and then processing and selling. Um, either through halves and holes and quarters or through some retail outlets still with uh, cut beef. They still retail our products. And then we have a local farmer's market that we go to as well that we sell from. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, that's great. I want to back up a little bit there and, and right. talk about something. I think it's neat to hear you know, the genesis of how people get into looking at you know, slow food when it either comes to you know, pasturing hogs or pasturing anything or, or even... Mm -hmm even organic gardening type of thing. So you usually hear that, okay, somebody has a, an issue with their health so that they get some more involved in that or they're just doing reading or they watched, um, um, oh, for crying out loud, the documentary totally slipped my mind. What's the one that everyone, 
Oh, for, ah, anyway, yeah, the, the documentary that came out that everybody was like, oh, watching it, oh, i got to change my whole eating lifestyle, that type of thing. It's terrible. I can't remember that. Oh, yeah. But I think it's fascinating. So your professional career in training and athletic athletic training and nutrition and those type of things gets you looking. It's like, oh, wow, okay, we, 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 we obviously are what we eat. And when it comes to even at a professional level of performance and athletics, mm-hmm. then I'm sure that's, that's even more important to look at uh, nutrition and intake. And how that segues back around to your growing up on a farm or having that experience and then kind of tying those two together. I think it's kind of neat that that's a a different way to to come about to the the same result that a lot of us came to. Yeah, I mean, I just I just started to see the impact of the food we put in our bodies can either be a detriment or can be a value. And the further I got into that and human performance and the way the body moves and works. You couldn't help but ignore, or you, you can't ignore um, the value that food plays and food quality plays um, in, in everyday life, whether it be whether you're a professional athlete or just a, a working mom or anything. Yeah. It, it makes a huge impact when you have quality food. Most definitely, most definitely. So tell me a little bit. So if I heard you correctly, you're you're back at doing training. You're, you're not doing the, the beef management anymore, but you're back at doing training as well correct that's correct so training is my full-time job um but we're, we're running the farm um on the side uh, now we have it here where we live so it makes it a lot easier to manage the animals um, yeah. we've got we've got about i think we're at 26 pigs at the moment um we've got i think 30 or so chickens and then we've got a couple of cows and we're working on uh, growing that side of things as well um in hopes of eventually getting into some grass-fed beef yeah. in the coming years yeah, very good. Now, now, when you say we, is that you know, uh, wife and kids tag team? Is that uh, extended family? Just me and my wife, right? Now, and then my dad and grandpa definitely, uh, definitely play a huge role and help me out quite a bit. Um, as far as management goes, they kind of see things from a different point of view, coming mm-hmm. from a different generation. But they also see the value of what we do. Um, they're some of my best customers and some of my best help for sure. I wouldn't be able. That's why it's Price Family Farm. I wouldn't be able to do it um, without the help of my wife, and then for sure my my dad and grandpa. Very cool. Yeah. So is that you said something there? So was that kind of one of those discussions that you have that hey, you know, we're gonna we're gonna raise pigs and we're gonna do something crazy and actually put them out on on pasture and they're gonna roam around. They're not going to be in like a traditional confinement area. Was was that a conversation you had with your dad and grandpa, or was it something else that they're kind of looking at your management style and say, well, I'm not sure about that. Well, it, it definitely was that. Um, I mean, they had seen what I'd been doing uh, when I was working for the beef company. We were still we were running the pigs way out in the woods, and once we moved back home, they they were like, "Well, we've got these barns here that you can put the pigs in." And I was like, "No, that's not exactly the plan." Um, I was able to pull back on some pictures and some of the things I've done in the past to show how those pigs can really clean up um, some unused spaces, uh, especially along creek bottoms, and uh, just the value of putting them out there and. They did not believe that my electric fence was going to keep them in, which a couple of times they were right. But, <laughs> That's always uh, the case. But they, they, to this day, are shocked that that little two-strand electric fence will keep those pigs that summer up to almost 400 pounds will will stay stay in and, and trust. So yeah. it, it's been a little bit of a learning experience for them to kind of see that and see it play out. But they've... They've been accepting. They're unsure, but they've been accepting for sure. Oh yeah, no, that's good stuff. That's what I love. You know, I love the, I love the generational aspect. And in fact, let's let's talk about that for a little bit. So, what does it mean to you? I, I'm going to assume since your your grandfather and your father and you are all still active on the farm, I I can start to make certain assumptions of your age. So, so what does it mean to you at the age that you are to be able to a be on the family farm? Uh, 100 year 100 plus year history there but being able to work three generations on on what you love here i I mean is that something that you reflect on regularly is it just kind of well okay yeah i got it it's great big deal kind of move on how how, how does that affect you no it's definitely motivation it's really cool to see um like you said i am a little bit younger i just turned 28 last month um so still pretty young but it's it's been great to be able to do all those things as my grandpa's getting up a little bit older he can't quite do all the things that he used to but he still has the wisdom and knowledge to pass down sure while i have the uh, physical capabilities um and and just learning from him uh, it's been it, it it really is cool and it's something right now it's still it's still fresh so it it 
it definitely still has that nostalgia to it to be able to do that with my dad and my grandpa and it's it's been an awesome relationship to have with the two of them because of it uh really has so i it, in my mind i picture i'm looking i have your instagram page up here so i'm looking at some of your images and stuff so in my mind as as i'm hearing you talk i'm picturing the three of you so three generations standing out in one of these beautiful pastures and <laughs> i have a feeling there's probably some stories that get told from time to time oh yeah definitely because uh my my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather both farmed on the same land. Um, they did everything from pigs to cows to uh, my great-grandfather's job was, uh, full-time job was uh, raising roses. That was what they did. Yeah. Um, and so it, there's, there's been a lot of production from the land here. Uh, and so it's cool. I, I think they appreciate as well to see um, one of their boys be really interested in uh, keeping the land and the family and, uh, making something of it having a purpose for it as well yeah yeah very cool very cool yeah i love it i mean obviously not not all of us are blessed to have that type of history and in that legacy but but when we run into people that do there's just a sweetness to that that i that's really kind of tough to describe it just you know this whole legacy element is just it's just very cool and i i think that I don't know. I, I, I would assume I, I can't. You know, I'm not from. The, I don't have that type of background. But I assume it just it makes you a, a more a better respecter of the land, a better respecter of what you're doing. You appreciate the stories more. Those type of things simply because now you're part of the next chapter of that story. No, that's absolutely true, for sure. Very good, very good. So, so it sounds to me like you, you made a comment there that you uh, you bought the hundred plus year old house. So I assume that was one of the houses on the property or the house on the property. Uh, is is there a little bit of update uh, uh, maintenance that needs to be done? A little bit of improvement on that. So is that something else you're juggling with the full time job and the farm? That is correct. So it uh, we're we're the fifth generation to be in this house. Uh, my great great grandfather built it back in 1912. Um, it. It is old, but it's got some good bones. Yeah, um, we're we've we've gone and refinished the wood floors, uh, repainted everything. It's it it has had some issues, uh, but we've we're working on making it a little more modern, updated. We added central AC, um, replaced a lot of single pane windows. Yeah, uh, things of that nature. Um, right now, it's actually getting we're re- rebuilding the porches and uh, giving it a fresh coat of paint on the outside uh, at the moment. Yeah, very good. Very good, and I, and that's kind of the neat thing about that as well. That's that's obviously a different skill set, but it, it's kind of funny how those those skill sets kind of overlap with the farming when it comes to infrastructure mm-hmm. building and infrastructure improvement. You know, maybe the old barn needs some work done to it, so those kind of those kind of needs help hone your skills, um, you know, across the board when it comes to being a being a, a farmer in today. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, that and that's been something that I've spent a lot of time with my dad. Uh, He's really good, uh, both as a mechanic and as a carpenter. So he's been helping me rebuild and fix some things. It's taught me a lot along the process. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. All right, so let's talk about the pigs a little bit and, and some of your infrastructure. So obviously a, a fifth-generation farm, uh, a lot of infrastructure in place, but not necessarily infrastructure for a pastured pig setup. You talked about running the pigs in some of the uh, the no-cow zones. <laughs> That's kind of funny to say. Um, the, the areas where you don't have cows uh, and, and utilizing that, putting some electric fence in. So how did you how did you manage that? Did you all sit down and say, okay, here's areas that the cows don't want to be in or we don't want them in so this is automatically pig area or did you have maybe a broader scope to say well we need to be close to here i've got to corral to load here i've got to have a you know my water access or my feed storage whatever what what were some of the key points in laying out that infrastructure uh really was water was was the main source uh, we do have a couple of water wells on the property um, that we use for water in the cattle at the moment uh, we've had enough rain that I haven't had to use that. Um, with the creeks that we have, they stay uh, very wet and have a consistent water flow year-round. Um, barring we we hit an extreme drought, mm-hmm. what I typically do is just I have, and it's it's about half a mile from the house. I've got the pigs down in the creek. We'll start at the bottom of one creek um, using just two-strand electric fence. We'll set up about an acre paddock, and then I'll set up the next one they're moving into, and then we just rotate them up the creek. Yeah. every two to four weeks depending on the weather and how the land looks it it gives them a fresh water source 
um, and allows them to clean up that spot. It's it, it's so wooded that there there's not even there really wasn't even a formal conversation on where the pigs were going to go. It was pretty clean and clear. Yeah, that's just that you, we worked them up the creeks, um, and that's and they've loved it. Uh, my family has been able to see that and open up some of those areas that would typically maybe have taken some time and fuel to go in and brush hog. So mm. um, having the pigs going and do that is is possibly saved us some money and some labor um, to keep the keep the property nice and clean as well. Yeah. So does that strategy allow you as as you're coming back around to to being finished where it's it's time for for loading and processing? Does it bring you back around to some fixed infrastructure you have, or do you go out and set up temporary infrastructure for loading and, and taking to processing? I've been pretty lucky, I think, on that side of things. I don't have any infrastructure at all for loading. Mm-hmm. Um, so my process is I take my trailer, I back it up into the pen. Um, so I'll pull the fence down, back over it, pull it back up, and then I'll walk into the trailer with a bag of feed. And just about every single one of those pigs come in there fighting me. <laughs> trying to get some food um and so then the battle begins of trying to back sort out the ones i don't want right right uh, eat. and the way our process goes we typically are we're taking in two to three pigs every month to the processor okay yeah that was gonna be my next question okay so they're they're well trained to that process they know um they're not afraid to go up in the trailer they're not afraid to be loaded because of that because they've been since a young age used to going and seeing it once a month and so it's not a process that frightens them. I haven't had any issues with it yet. Um, granted, there could be problems down the line of maybe one particular pig doesn't want to go in and ends up being 500 pounds before I can get it, him or her loaded. But <laughs> I've got one I of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 well, that's one of those things you you deal with it when you come to it. Yeah, you know, if, right. if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it per se. So I, I'm, we'll talk about processing here in a second. I want to back up a little bit because there's there's several things that you've said in, in, in our discussion and then your pre-screening I think would be handy for us to discuss a little bit. But let's back up to to pig breed choice because I know you're you're uh, since you're not farrowing you are just you are getting feeders, but it's not like you're just going and grabbing any anybody's pigs. You you have a there's a method to your madness, right? There's a specific breed or a specific uh, genetic makeup you're looking for. That's correct, um, and that's and that's been kind of a pro, that's been a learned by uh, learned by failure on some of those. Just mm-hmm. trying to figure out what breeds fit what we're trying to do. Uh, like I said earlier, we we try to raise ours to about a year old. We shoot for about a three hundred and fifty pound finish weight. Yeah, uh, yield really well for us, um, and because of that, we end up picking some breeds that are typically a little bit larger. Uh, like a red waddle's been has been a staple for us. Um, a lot of crosses Redwall and berkshire have been my favorite two uh, of the mix and i've got i've got about three to four different breeders now that i purchased from that i really trust and i've been really happy with um that we use uh just here in the tyler area we've been i've been lucky to have people that are that fit that mold that love fairwing and have the infrastructure to do that uh and so it's it's been a good trade there's even i've, I've got a one breeder guys called uh, old time swine that are really really into genetics they have some old line hampshire uh, a bunch of old line uh, durox as well that they're really proud of that that produce some incredible meat yeah and so that that's been a that's been a an exciting part for me to be able to kind of pick and choose and play with some different ones and see how they finish out see how their what their temperament is and see how the meat turns out in the end to be able to try it and taste it it's been a cool little science experiment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's, that's kind of the neat thing. Like you say, with those different sources, you can you can definitely have some control groups there to be able to explore and see what uh, what you're getting the results. Now, one thing you said in your pre-screening is a red wattle manga mix. How have you seen that stack up with some of your other uh, genetic lines? I've those have been really nice. They're very popular. Um, people aren't as familiar with the mangalisa as they are with the red wattle, as far as a consumer. Uh, but when you start showing them pictures of a mangalitsa, they think it's really cool. Yeah. yeah. That there's a, that there's a sheep pig. Right. Yeah. So, uh, the meat's been good. They finish out a little bit slower than I'd like. Yeah. Uh, typically it's hard to get them up to that 350 pounds. Usually they're topping out at about 300. Yeah. Yeah. It's my only thing about them that I don't absolutely love. The meat quality is fantastic. Uh, 
just not getting the same return on as much quantity of meat um, as I'd like. So along that same vein, are you seeing even, uh, so even in that 300 finish, are you seeing a, a uh, reduction of consumable meat versus you know, fat cap and all that type of stuff? Is, is that out of balance or is that still good for you? No, it's been good. And that's why I think, um, especially having in some of the, the, I think the Bercher and Duroc mix allows me to get to that larger size without seeing, without having a bunch of wasted fat. Yeah. Uh, we've got some sources for that. We've played around with, um, we've cooked down some lard to sell. My wife has made some lotions and uh, hand soaps and different things like that with it. Uh, candles. Uh, we can sell around here. Hunting's a big deal. Uh, so typically in the fall, I can sell a lot of uh, any excess fat that I have to hunters that want to mix it in with their venison. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that has definitely been a consideration because there, there has been times, and I've worked, my process would be good at working with me, let me know that I've had some that have had a bunch of just wasted fat. Right, right, yeah. Uh, we're trying to avoid. And that usually comes when we bring in some of those smaller, more lard-type breeds like the Mangalitsa, or I've done some Mulefoot, which is a very rare breed, mm-hmm. and some Ossipaw Island crosses as well. Um, some of those pigs typically will will put on a little bit of extra fat when you get to that size. Yeah. So... Yeah, and uh, this this is going down a rabbit trail here, but this is something that's got me thinking. How are you managing your your history and your data of that? Is so so as you finish these different lines and and see how they stack stack out. How are you keeping track of that? So next year, you're like, okay, we're going to do this, or we're going to lean a little heavier on this side. Uh, what management tools are you using? Well, I mean, I really for some reason just love Excel spreadsheets. Yeah, and yeah, very good got i've got a main one going that i use that tracks um, i got a few things that i look at and mark down everything from their their hoof weight to hanging weight to finished box weight um, so i can see my percentage yields on each animal and make sure i'm not wasting a bunch of meat on each one and making sure that the the amount of feed i'm putting into them is worthwhile and keeping them as long as i do which is typically a little bit longer than most yeah um is making me money and not just costing me money Very good. Uh, and time. So I've got, I've just got a spreadsheet that every time I get an animal back, I weigh, um, weigh the whole thing out, um, with my finished box meat, which is really the big thing. My percentage from live weight to, to actual meat is to me the most valuable part and looking at some of that to make sure I don't have too much waste. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, wow. I want, I want to reiterate that. And, and again, I, I don't want to talk down to our listeners. I know, people that listen are, are astute at this type of stuff. But I, I just want to make sure if, if people are driving and they kind of zoned out a little bit to, to reiterate. So you have the ability in your process to weigh at three different points. So you're getting a live weight, either you're doing it or your processor's doing it. Yes. You're getting a hanging weight. And then you're coming back to the farm with your uh, box of, of meat from that specific animal and you're then putting that on a scale to weigh. Is that correct? Yes, sir. That is correct. Yeah, so I, I think that's so so critical when it comes to managing data because you, you you hit some key points there. You know, a lot of us, like in my situation, I don't have the ability to get a live weight, so all I get's a hanging weight, mm-hmm. and then of course I can come yeah. back and do uh, do the math on that. You know, that's seventy two to seventy four percent. Blah blah blah. You yep. try to try to calculate <laughs> that, but it, but it's a little arbitrary. And, and then, of course, you know, usually when I'm processing, I'm, everything kind of just gets dumped in a big bucket type of thing. So it's not even separated out by, by individual swine. So having that luxury to do that really fits in well with your model because that's the adjustments that you can make and say, okay, yeah. To me, that's where that would show up immediately. Say, okay, this manga cross is producing way too much fat or we're just not getting what yep. we want or you realize hey this this is actually you know, turning a profit for us because of the the higher quality of meat and it still pencils out in the long run no absolutely and it's been it's been helpful to be able to track and do that especially when i go back and talk to some of my breeders because um, i have a good relationship with them and for some reason every one of them they really want to put in they want to cross with one of those smaller large type pigs and i keep coming back to them and showing the numbers and saying the meat quality is great and there is some space for it um, with some different consumers but having a bunch of back fat doesn't really sell right and so i can show them the yields i'm having the growth i've got at the different ages yeah and we can have conversations about what kind of crosses 
maybe we want to do in the future. Yeah, and and what I mean that's that's awesome to have that relationship and it to be local, so you yes. can have that conversation to say, hey, you know this, uh, you know, your your sire and dam of of this line that you gave me, they produced X, these produced Y, so they can say, well, okay, if somebody's looking for maybe they're looking for that smaller pig that's more large, then from your experience and your data, they can say, okay, I'm going to keep this breeding set. Uh, and whatever we get out of here is going to go to these customers that are looking for X. And then you know, Clay over here wants something that's a little bit more productive. So we can always keep this breed set. So it's interesting. I, I mean, what you're producing is data not only for your own business model, but you're 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 reinforcing your breed lines from your from your from your sources to say, hey, you know, here here's the data I'm going to share with you guys so they can even make adjustments. So in essence, you know, you're value adding their their work with the data that you're providing to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want, I don't want it to seem like I'm really uh, putting down some of the smaller and different breeds. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. They're definitely a place for them and a lot of value. Oh, yeah. we, we have local chefs that want whole pigs that that's that's more of what they prefer. Yeah. And so we, we can find a market for those and, and use those um, just when we especially when we go to individually retail items, it, it comes out. It works out better for our business and our farm to have a little bit of those larger breeds that are putting on a little bit more weight uh, faster. Yeah, well, and and that's that's a good segue. Um, so looking at that, I know some people may you know be offering a little pushback as they listen. It's like, well, okay, Clay, yeah. going going a year long on this, you're going a little bit too long. Your feed conversion is going to drop off. You know, you're building up fat. You're, and, of course, your data is going to tell you whether you are or not. So so you have your finger on that pulse. But also, if I understand correctly, the way that you sell a lot of your, your hogs with whole, half, and then you said something about quarters that I want to talk about here in a second, but also a lot of retail cuts. And the retail cuts through a retail location, uh, through a farmer's market, those type of things. So speak into that a little bit so how does your resell or your actual selling of your products help underscore your your intent to keep your pigs for that year so they grow bigger yeah so it helps us uh, get a really good yield and a little better expectation it gives us a a, a different point especially when you start to look at cuts like uh, the pork butt or uh, your pork chops uh, it gives a different look when you keep the animals or able to keep them a little bit longer you're able to put on some better marbling i found and then when you start putting some of those cuts out next to, say, a cut of beef, um, they look really impressive. Mm. Um, we've even gotten, I've been able to work my processor to start uh, splitting up my pork chops into bone-in ribeye and T-bones and market them in that manner. Uh, and that's that's been really good for us uh, to be able to move those because we get a lot of yield of those. Um, and sometimes that's an item that stacks up for us being able to do that especially at our retail at the retail location where the beef is at uh, when you set one of those up next to a steak and it's about the same size and is darker and redder in color than <laughs> what you would expect uh, it really draws some eyes and yeah. people are willing to pay more uh, for a product of that quality oh yeah yeah i guarantee i mean that that that's beautiful to be able to do that and and, and people see the tangible results of that right there in front of them well, let's talk a little bit about quarters, because you know you don't hear that too often in the pig industry where people are selling quarters. So, first of all, tell me how that came about. Was that something you realized that hey, we need to offer this? Was that feedback from from customers? Um, what was the genesis of offering that? Well, it was kind of an idea that came from working at the uh, beef company. We obviously sold quarter halves and holes, and quarters were our most popular with with the beef. Sure. Obviously, a good bit larger, yeah. Uh, cut, but with the pork, I found that the smaller I got, uh, the more likely I was to be able to get a customer because I was able to lower the overall uh, cost of the of the meat. So they were more likely to buy in, and it didn't require as much freezer space as well. So mm-hmm. started with halves and holes, and just found that there were some people that were wanting to do something a little bit smaller. So we just went to a quarter, um, and we set ours up where we we have it at a specific weight. So our holes, you're going to get 120 pounds of meat and just about every cut, we can get pretty close to what it's going to be on every single hole. Mm. And then the excess we have, we're able to sell through our retail channels of the farmer's market or the beef company. Oh, okay. So we'll do 120 pound hole, a 60 pound half, and then a 30 pound quarter. 
which allows it, it's got a little less put you, you get a little less concern from the consumer as far as overall cost freezer space how long is it going to take me to eat all this meat when you get down to the size of a quarter and it's been one of our most popular things to sell and i'm able to sell it at a little higher margin because i do have to split it up and requires a little more time and effort uh, so i'm able to get a little bit more for it so i don't mind doing that uh, in the process yeah i, I wow I, I think this is fascinating so let, let's dive into this a little deeper so so to kind of reiterate, what you're doing is a whole half and a quarter is a mm-hmm. predefined amount of, of pork. So not only can you predefine the, the amount of weight, you're going to get at least 120 pounds for the whole, uh, 60 for the half and so forth. But you're also, I assume with that, you're also able to set a flat rate. So, right. in, so in that situation, the 120 pounds of, of pork for the whole is X. So people know going straight out the gate this whole hog is going to cost me X. That's right. So how do you handle your processing fees in that? Are you absorbing processing fees and have that in the uh, in that 120 pounds uh, weight price, or are you tacking that on? How are you handling processing? No, so there, so I, I handle all, I take on all the costs up to that point. That way it's, that, that allows it to be that one set price and yeah. it makes it simpler for them. And you don't have to try to explain to a customer why, why they're paying for the hanging weight, but not getting all that weight yeah. and paying processing fees. It just makes it super simple to communicate. Um, and so we just take on all those costs. And then the, the biggest flexibility is being able to retail on top of that. If I was just selling right. quarters, halves and holes, I wouldn't have that flexibility. Um, but because I have the retail, I'm able to keep any of the excess and turn around and sell and just make sure that my, I, I have it set with those weights that I, anything I finish is going to produce more than that right? for a whole or whatnot. So. Yeah. And, and that's interesting. That's a key. Cause I, I like your model. It's very interesting. And, and you just, you know, kind of nailed it. The, the linchpin of that is the fact that you have the retail outlet. So you're not wasting pork or, and, and maybe I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I would assume that even if a, a hole for some reason could not produce 120, let's say it got to 118, then you have the the ability to reach over into hog number two that maybe is a surplus and fill that, or do you try to keep it straight? No, that, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. I'd, I'd pull from the other one if it wasn't big enough um, to make it even. That way the customer knows. And it allows us to. We have a really cool graphic that we we use to market that has the quarter half and a hole on one piece of paper. It shows them the weight, mm-hmm. and it shows them a range of every single cut that they're going to get. Yeah. So they know exactly in that box awesome yeah and that and that's that's something i i think comes back to the education of the customer is is super handy and that's where good marketing comes in and and to your point to say that i, I know i've i've even had it's funny people kind of ask tongue-in-cheek but i've had a couple people at times in, in my history of selling holes and halves where they'll ask am i getting the left half or the right half <laughs> and it's like no you're getting the front half you know i'll joke with them and say no you're just getting the front half you didn't pay enough to get the back half but um but yeah, th- this type of mentality, and and we kind of perpetuate it to say yes. Um, well, sure, I'm, I'm selling you a whole hog, so every bit of that cut comes from that hog, half hog. Yes, you're getting, you know, the the processor cut it in half, so we're assuming that you're getting you know the left half or the right half. We don't know which, but that's what we're getting. So when it comes to a quarter, I I think I know my customers. The knee jerk would be, well, what about ham? Am I getting the are we getting am I getting the front of a half or the back of a half? So, so how do you deal with that? So, you know, so obviously a half a hog or a quarter hog uh, only has has one ham. When somebody wants a whole ham, how are you dealing with? That? Are you having those because you've got bigger bigger uh, uh, pigs, or are you doing all sliced? How, how do you how do you navigate who gets a ham in a quarter? So yeah, so that is, that is a definite issue. And 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 the hams we make we typically make those optional because only during the end of the year, Thanksgiving, Christmas, do we actually sell whole or half hams for the most part we right. typically cut them into individual steaks yeah absolutely um as our processor can can cure and cut individual steaks so it makes it makes it a lot easier to communicate what they're getting um we do have the same thing with our pork butts that that uh, shoulder roast we do cut those in half on each side so we end up with four of them um, on every animal that way we can't fulfill those quarters uh, with one in each if we do a, a quarter very good, very good. So I, I really like your strategy, man. I think it's I think it's solid. Now, just just out of morbid curiosity, and this is kind of drilling down deeper. Mm-hmm. How about so when you're selling a whole and a half and a quarter, 
and you're getting all of that processed, are you having all of that packaged for uh, for retail sale no matter what? So so it all ends up being retail packaging so you don't have to worry about, well, this was labeled just custom, this was labeled retail. Is it all just being done retail? Yeah, we just, I just do retail on every one with our label on it. Um, it makes it simpler to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Maybe, yeah, it costs a little bit more, I assume, in the long run, right. but it, but it's it's definitely worth the management uh, that you save in that process. Yep. Awesome. Well, man, that's good. I I, I like that model, and and I you know people listening, I, I I I'd encourage you to think about that because that really provides a lot of flexibility. It's going to make your marketing easier. And it's going to give you that opportunity to value add. As Clay said, just imagine you sold somebody a quarter who's just sticking her toe in the water of, of ordering uh, pig in bulk. So they're t- testing that out. Maybe they got a small freezer. They get to try everything. So they get some bacon. They get sausage. They get roasts. They get pork chops. They get sliced ham. And then they can come back to Clay and say, wow, that was really great. I want to get a whole ham from you or a half ham that I can have you know, during the holidays or whatever. And then you have that ability because you still have retail inventory there in the wings waiting to be sold out. All right. Well, that's uh, – so, okay. So, let, let, let's talk about this then. So, I, I, I kind of want to talk about your, your animal inventory throughout the year. Now, you had said earlier in the discussion that you take two to three hogs a month to your processor to obviously keep that retail inventory rolling for you. Are you restocking each month? So this is a round robin, or do you get to where you know, November of 2022, you maybe got two two pigs left on the farm, and then you're starting all over at some point? How does that play out? No, so we're continuing as we as pigs are going out, we're bringing pigs in. It may not be um, the two to three that go out. We'll we'll typically look at buying uh, a whole litter at a time, usually from our breeders, is what I do. Mm-hmm. And so uh, usually about every two to three months we'll buy that are in uh to keep the inventory up and it and because of our process and because we keep them for a year it makes it hard to uh guesstimate how many we're going to need the next year so that's uh that's part of the part of the process is just trying to forecast um if there is going to be we think an uptick in sales or if we know that we're going to add on another market somewhere um then we'll look at going ahead and a year ahead of time purchasing some extra pigs um, and, and go ahead and planning and putting them on a specific month. Cause we know, I basically know which pig when I buy it, when I'm going to have it processed the next year, I've, I've got them structured out throughout the, throughout the process to have spots for them, um, as they go along. So we're, we're filling as we go in. So we typically have anywhere from 20 to 30 p- pigs on the farm year round. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So, so that produces, groups of different litter size so how how much do you separate and diversify those groups is this are these the youngins and the older ones two two groups is this four groups is this 10 groups they all stay together in one big herd oh uh, okay. that works yeah that works the best for us they all stay together um and it helps too when we introduce new younger pigs um we try to train the electric fence but still they are more likely to get out than our bigger ones mm-hmm so having the bigger ones with them helps train them with them staying inside the fence for sure. They're not going anywhere. So those younger pigs may sneak out during the day, but when we go to feed, uh, they'll, they know where, they know where food's at. They know where home is with, uh, with the rest of the herd. So they'll come back in, um, and eventually learn to not touch that electric fence or try to sneak underneath real quickly. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So have, have you run into any issues with um, aggression towards feed so that you know, the bigger ones knocking the young ones out and they're not getting access or do you do you have diversified troughs that at least allow everybody to get where they need to get? As long as I have enough troughs, I've been fine. Um, when I have, as it grew, there were some times that I probably didn't have enough. There was some, some fighting and aggression and yeah, the bigger ones would definitely have their way on um, getting first servings whenever food goes out. Yeah. But I just try to make sure I've got enough trough spread out that when I do put out feed, um, the big ones are going to get to it first. The little one, little ones learn to kind of hang around in the back, and then as everybody spreads out, then go find their place. Yeah, plug in and get a bite. So you do a ration feed. You don't do uh, a free choice. That's correct, and that's part of. And I forgot to mention earlier that kind of fits into why we're doing a year long. Mm-hmm. Um, we spread them out. We want to. We want our pigs to graze. We don't do a free choice because we want them to root around. 
um, get some of the mass that's coming out from the trees in the fall. We yeah. want them to forage as well as um, eat the feed that we're giving them. And so we just feed once a day um, that we we adjust and manage based off how many pigs we have at a time. Yeah, yeah, I gotta say that that's my model as well, and I agree. I see, I see a much better ratio balance of forage to to feed. Obviously, the, to me, I, I'm, I'm very confident that the feed waste is reduced dramatically yep. when you have a, a ration. Then, of course, just the uh, daily daily animal husbandry, the eyes on, hands on. Uh, encounter you get versus you know when you have a two-ton feeder and you're like well I don't have to go out there today then then you kind of default to that sometimes and say, I'm not going to go check on them because you know they've got the feed they've got the water they're good uh, so this allows you to have that that regular daily contact absolutely well let me ask you one more thing and I, I know I want to be sensitive to your time uh, but let me ask you one more thing so in that part of Texas are feral hogs an issue yes so, how, so does, yeah, how does that factor in in your management? So when I was trying to breed, I had some issues with feral hogs getting in and breeding my sows. Yeah. Um, I do try as best I can to buy as many fem- buy as few females as possible. Okay. I actually just had a litter born out of one that I had up until she started showing signs. I had no clue she was pregnant. She was the only female I had in the whole group. Yeah. But a feral hog had gotten in and bred her at some point and didn't didn't trip any sense of for me because I never had any issues with my fencing. Right. He was able to slip in and slip out without messing up my fencing. <laughs> um, outside of that, I haven't had a problem. They've never, they've never gotten mine loose. Um, it's just a matter of when you do have females, you will have some wild boars that will try to get in and, and breed them. Yeah. So that's just a, a part of the process. Yeah. That's interesting. We, we fortunately don't have, I mean, there, there are, very minimal feral hogs in in the state of West Virginia that we are in to to deal with that. But I know the further south you go, especially in your neck of the woods, that could become a serious issue. So they are plenty. So how did that work out? If you don't mind me asking, how'd that work out with a sow that got bred? So she farrowed. How did you factor those in? How you know, is that a okay? We need to get rid of all these. So they all became roasters pretty quickly, or or what was your what was your reaction to that? Well, I didn't know at first. So I've actually, so the ones that just, just birthed weren't my, this, that was the second time this has happened. Um, the first ones that I've had, I actually just took into the processor. And I'm curious to get the meat back here in about a month to see how it turned out. They grew a little slower. Sure. Um, those feral pigs just don't, they don't finish out as fast. But the meat quality should be the same. I castrated just the same. So I had barrows for the, for the males. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it just took a little bit longer, but I think the meat quality is going to be good enough. I, I intend to retail everything and sell it just the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you say, that, that's just that's just another part of the spreadsheet now that you can put in there and say, okay, let's throw this in. <laughs> yeah, we know we know this this guilt who got bred. She was X Y Z, and now yeah, we you know we assume I I don't know anything about feral hogs. So I assume there's a, a certain type of genetic understanding about the feral hogs it's like, okay then this was a feral so this is this is what we've got we've got um, you know, our, our red wattle berkshire's uh, guilt uh, you know, crossed with a with a feral and just see what what how that turns out you may get to the point where you said hey i'm gonna let the fence down every time <laughs> That's not, it's been a consideration and a discussion for sure just to maybe teach females and uh, maybe do that to breed but yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's definitely interesting. So um, I assume, logically, that the, the males, when you say you, you normally try to get males, you're getting all barrows, so you're not, having, you're not worrying right. about crossbreeding at all. Yeah, good stuff. Yep. But that's the beauty of, of getting, um, getting your feeder pigs from somebody else, of course. You, you can pick and mm-hmm. choose. Whereas when you farrow, you, you, have, you have to deal with all <laughs> the, the things that you get. Yep. Uh, all right, Clay. Well, I'm, I... Uh, I don't want to take you up any longer. I know you've got uh, plenty of work to do, and, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast. But I do have to ask you the question I ask everyone else. What is your favorite part about raising pigs on pasture? Well, it wasn't what I expected, but I, I definitely have to say it's been the relationships um, that it's created in my life, um, whether that be with my family, uh, with customers, or my uh, breeders. There's been an incredible amount of relationships that I wouldn't have had had I not gone down this route. Um, of raising pigs and so it's been cool to meet so many great people that have impacted my life uh, that 
I, I'm very grateful for that. I think I think that has been the coolest thing to me, and definitely a very unexpected thing. Um, when you think of farming, you think of it being a kind of a solidarity type deal where you're out on your own working, um, but it really does. It takes a community to do that, and so whether it be, like I said, the family or the breeders, the customers, they've been the relationships have been great. Yeah, very good, very good. I love that. That's yeah, that's that's not a common answer I get, but I. I I can appreciate that, especially knowing um, knowing where you're coming from with the family generation and all that. That that's I love the weightiness that that adds to your experience to say this this is not just about me. This is not just about selling pork to make some money. This is this has so much more implications to it. So that's great, great. Well, if people want to find out more about Price Family Farm, how can they find you online? They can find us on Facebook, it's just Christ Family Farm, or on Instagram, Christ Family Farm TX. Um, we do have, we don't have our own website, but we do have all of our products online at cutbeef.com. Oh, okay. Uh, they do that for us, and so that's a, a nice tool to have where people can, across the country, buy and order our products and have them shipped anywhere. Very good, very good. Awesome. Well, man, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, enjoy talking with you, and I pray you have a good week. Thank you, Troy. I appreciate you having me on. Well, I really appreciate Clay coming on the podcast. I, I really like his approach to how he's uh, running his farm there and, and some of the unique ways he's put in to deal with customers and, and give them what they need and what they expect. As always, if you would like to be on the podcast or you've got a topic you'd like us to track down, then uh, just reach out to me. You can uh, use a contact form at the Pastured Pig website, or you can go to redtoolhouse.com and use a contact form there. Either way, or email directly, troy at redtoolhouse.com, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Uh, I've been trying to still find specifics, uh, specific pastured pig uh, veterinarian to talk to and those type of things, so... If you have any lines on that, just let me know and uh, we can check that out. Well, I appreciate everybody listening. And again, I can't thank you enough uh, for the support on Patreon. That really helps out. That definitely keeps me motivated, keeps me going, covers the costs of the hosting and some of those other things. So I really appreciate that. And we'll hopefully just continue to get this to grow. All right. I pray everyone have a great week. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.